revolution starting inside An instrumental part of Agora Worldwide Agora Worldwide, Agora Worldwide Counter economics, agorist strip Black market click, move a quick flip Can't regulate this, agorist strip Black market click, move a quick flip Can't regulate this, agorist the Agorist Nexus podcast. I'm Brandon. I've got my great co-host, Dag. How you doing, Dag? Hey, Brandon. I'm doing pretty pretty good, man. How you doing uh, this fine afternoon? I'm doing good. Probably not as good as pre-search, though. Um, Dude, I know. That's crazy, huh? Um, I, do you, like, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, what, what, what was the last time you checked? Uh, was that around 20 cents last time I checked? It's, I mean, um you know, huge supporter of the project. And I'm not surprised at all that it, um, that it's been do- doing really good. So, um, yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Um, excellent search engine, of course, no, uh, no spying, no censorship, uh, really cool crypto, <laughs> crypto program. You probably might be a little excited about it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, very cool project. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, uh, I think we'll definitely see it see it go a little bit higher in the future but um but who knows i I don't have my crystal ball out so but um they just came out with a really cool upgrade and uh man i almost thought i was on google the other day they um they're looking sharp so definitely check out pre-search hit the link um hit our affiliate link below to uh to, to show them that we're worth sponsoring for sure and um and yeah with that said we've got a great guest on um tech libre he's done some stuff for gorish nexus which i really appreciate um and uh he's in a different part of the world and, and he knows a lot about tech so i wanted to have him on um how you doing today tom pretty good thanks for having me on yeah i i, I want to plug pre-search too i like the engine results and getting paid in crypto basically for doing what Google used to pay me nothing for and abuse my data with. So yeah, if you guys are listening, check out pre-search and you can pick up a few dollars here and there while you're searching the internet. It's a pretty good search engine in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, they just keep adding to it. You know what I mean? I mean, any project that's, you know, still new, Obviously, you know, there's going to be improvements on, but yeah, it just, it just keeps getting better and, um, and, and more useful for sure. Uh, yeah, I love it. And I love when our guest is familiar with it too. So we get to <laughs> have a conversation about it. <laughs> so tech, show I, we're not just hawking something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tech, I really wanted to thank you for, um, for doing all you did on the last documentary. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I really appreciate it for sure. So. Um, and if, if you guys don't know, he also, um, wrote an article for us too. He, he's an author at Agoras Nexus. We look forward to any more content that you come out with too. But, um, I want to start out with Peru. You're in Peru. Um, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a, a different political situation down there that you guys just had an election. Right. And then also, um, also I wanted to get a feel for like, uh, what the COVID situation or. I mean, government's reaction to COVID um, is down there too. Sure, yeah. The election here was between uh, Keiko Fujimori, who was the daughter of the uh, previous president slash dictator Alberto Fujimori. And she's still surrounded by the same kind of apparatchiks and corruption as her father was, including... uh, uh, involvement of Vladimir Montesinos, who was uh, his right-hand man and turned out to be a CIA asset. He was working to manipulate the election from uh, from his jail cell on an island offshore of Lima. Uh, she lost the election, I think, only by uh, less than 100,000 votes out of 17 million to a uh, a second grade teacher, uh, his name is Pedro Castillo, and he is uh, with a party called Peru Libre, and their party platform document reads like uh, 
I don't know, Pensamento Mao or uh, Pensamento Gonzalo. So they're pretty hardcore Marxists. The, the thing is, is that the, the governability here and either of their abilities to really handle the situation are pretty questionable. So we'll see what happens. But the, the, I'm not a big fan of either of them. But I guess I would have to admit that Keiko Fujimori probably would have been the lesser of two evils. But we'll see what happens with Pedro. When, um, when you say governability, uh, it, it, my geography is awful, so uh, bear with me. But like Peru is one of those kinds of places where it's like, just like geographically, like it's really hard. You know, like it's mountainy or something, right? Is, is that what you mean when you say governability? Or do you just, does, yeah. does the government not have yeah. a lot of resources or what do you mean? It, it's it's all of those things I'd say were are true. If you leave Lima, you can go. There are two major highways that run north and south in Peru, and three that run east and west. But there's no uh, like highway that goes from Brazil to Peru. And once you get down off of the continental divide into the jungle, you're on a boat. So <clears throat> the idea that they can effectively operate the government from Lima, from a centralized government in Lima, has been a, an ongoing problem in Peruvian history. Uh, and then Lima, Trujillo, and Arequipa are the three largest cities. They're on the coast. They're definitely, you know, populated by Creole people uh, who speak Spanish and the highlands are populated by people who speak Spanish and Quechua and have a very different outlook on life. So the conflicts, the social conflicts here are a huge problem because what they point to here in Peru is capitalism is the same thing they point to as capitalism in the United States, which is I don't know, corporatism, soft fascism with some social democratic elements. And the reality for people in the highlands is if you live in a little town of 3,000 people up there, your only contact with the government is the shitty public school and the corrupt police. So they, they have major issues with being able to make the policies that they develop in Lima work for the entire country. And then on top of that, the number one and number two business to get into in Peru are corruption and exporting cocaine. So it's, it's quite a, a mix. And both very lucrative, <laughs> or at least they can yeah. be. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so th if uh, if cocaine's a big export, they must have um, a cartel uh, cartel involvement then, somewhat. Yeah, and yeah. Here's the amazing part: there is no cocaine cartel in Peru. Oh wow! Okay. It's and it. What I would say and what I pointed to, I guess, in a lot of tweets and things that I come across in the media, the the top level of the military and the police and certain actors, civilian actors in the government are the cartel. Ah, okay. So pretty much the government is, uh, is behind it. Then. Facilitating yeah. You know, uh-huh. And I've heard a lot of Peruvians who've, who've told me that the, the CIA does it. The DEA does it. <laughs> oh yeah without a doubt man yeah, biggest I mean, drug dealers in the world yeah dude i mean if nothing else they're just ensuring their own jobs you know i mean if they actually were effective and got rid of drugs like you know they work themselves out of a job right <laughs> so <laughs> well and and the other interesting thing is that you know the 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 street cocaine in in peru will makes the tourists do the fish in the discotheque bathrooms. They come here and they're, they're used to getting, you know, cocaine that's cut in half and then they get the pure cocaine here and they get sick from it. 
Yeah, I'm sure. So, <laughs> it, the the I, idea, I think another problem is like a lot of other things that Peru produces, uh, they make the raw product and then you have countries like Venezuela now and Colombia that are actually handling the 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 retail and or the the middleman position and the and making the bigger money on it. So you guys are more like production and stuff in Peru, and then because like I said, it's not as cartel, you know, not as much of a cartel, and move it out to the, the other countries. And I mean, hey, it might even make sense, like I said, infrastructure wise, if Peru is a little hard to get around. Yeah, exactly. What's the so, um, what, uh, what's the government's so, yeah, what's reaction? Like, <laughs> like you know, uh, well, go, go ahead. I was basically asking the same thing. What's like uh, you know, yeah, the general what's the, vibe and whatnot? Yeah, um, like the government's down, reaction down to there COVID. right now. <laughs> down there right now. Yeah, like the government's reaction to COVID. Oh well, they the. The government here on March 15th last year basically dismissed the civil rights part of the Constitution and locked everybody down for about six months. The schools are all still closed. And just now, I would say we're starting to get back to a normal amount of uh, commercial traffic and things like that. But all of the places like gymnasiums, malls, movie theaters, the casinos are all at uh, maximum 50% capacity. And then the uh, curfew, they've had a curfew in place since last March too. The curfew has been extended now. It's only from one in the morning until four in the morning. But they started off with that being from nine o'clock at night until six in the morning and no one could leave their home on Sunday. So we, we started out here in Peru, kind of where Australia is right now. And what, what happened is, is that they wiped 15 years of economic, good economic times off of the charts here in Peru, and people were mad. So uh, I think that kind of fed into the election against the anti-oligarchy or anti-quote-unquote Peruvian right and opened up an opportunity for the Marxists to get in there. So the they're now kind of backing off a little bit on the social or the medical martial law. I'm not sure how that'll work out in the future, but the reaction here was outrageous. Uh, I'll look right here. The death toll. Peru has 30 million people. And the total amount of people who died from COVID is 198,447. So percentage-wise, we're still 99% of Peruvians have survived COVID. Now, um, how so accurate... So they've made, it, <clears throat> they made a, 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 a disaster out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how government makes everything. What was worse. that, Brandon? I'm gonna re re-ask that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, how's the? Uh, I I think I'm I'm think I'm cutting in and out here, but um, uh, how how accurate do you think the death numbers are? Like like in Mexico, um, I'm in Mexico right now, and the they'll. The government will pay you if you put if pay families if you um, if you let them put COVID as death on the um, as cause of death on the death certificate. Is it, have you seen anything like that in Peru or? Yeah, my understanding was is that the since they have a national health system here. When this first started out, the the national health system was getting a payment for everybody who died of COVID. So they they were I I would imagine they were writing that on uh, people's death certificates who died of COVID. The excess deaths 
this last year in Peru were 50,000. But when they, last March, when they went to the medical martial law into the lockdown, they closed all of the kidney dialysis centers. And the people were, who were uh, insulin dependent diabetics did also, also did not have access to their uh, insulin in a normal way for over a month. So I, I strongly suspect that a lot of those people were basically murdered through in, incompetence, unintended uh, consequences, or, you know, maybe even malice, the way that they handled this. And I don't think that the, the, the COVID here is more of a threat than things that were previously huge problems like uh, dengue fever, childhood anemia, malaria, malnutrition, infant mortality, influenza kills a lot of people in this country too. Well, it did before the pandemic. So all of those numbers have been pushed down to zero or hidden. So I think that there's a big portion of those people, apart from the kidney dialysis people and the diabetics who died and were labeled as COVID deaths when they got killed by their previous comorbidity. And I, I honestly, with, with a country like Peru, I think it would be very hard to ever get the real numbers published or put out there. Yeah, and that's, you know, like we said about like the dialysis centers, I mean, like, like I mean, you, one way or another, I mean, you have to, like, somebody has to know, hey, we're going to close these down. It's like, nobody's gonna be like, oh, well, what about all the people who are obviously going to die? You know, <laughs> like, what about that? You know, that is just, this whole thing has just been so insane. And then, you know, you look at, you know, like, you know, like, like in Peru or whatever, where it's obviously not having a big deal with it. And it would definitely seem like the, the big motivation for them to push all this there is whatever funding they're get for marking down COVID deaths or illnesses or, or ventilator usages or whatever the heck, you know, people are getting subsidized for along those lines these days. Um, but it's just, I don't know, man. It's just so crazy that people seem to go along with it. You know, I'd have to guess that most of the general populace there isn't, isn't too terrified of it. Um, you know, so it's just crazy to see that they'll push so hard. Now, is this going to be typically most of this um, um, authoritarianism, uh, so to say? Is this going to be mostly in the cities? Because, again, like, you know, governability of the area. Yeah, if if you're going to pull that off in Peru, what you're you're only going to be able to lock down the big cities. And yeah. the other thing is, is that I've seen maybe 10 or 15 incidents in the time that I've been here in Peru where people in one region in the highlands will go out to the major uh, highway and they'll dump rocks and logs and burning tires on the highway and they will shut this country down. Nice. Uh, so well, sort of. depending on, yeah, depending on which highway they block, they can control, for example, the flow of papaya, coffee, mining, uh, mining ore like copper silver and gold so they they know that and they will do it so they have that problem where yeah you have all the power in lima but you don't really because the i've even heard highlanders who are here in lima talk about yeah we'll we'll starve them <laughs> if they push us too far we'll starve them so there that's one of the issues with governability right there and the, their ability to project that through the whole country. Hey guys, quick pause here to tell you about our sponsor, Devault Cryptocurrency. Ticker symbol DVT is a low cap coin with a market cap around 900,000. So there could be room for opportunity here, not financial advice, but we really like this project. Yeah, the Devault Core Wallet is one of the best I've ever seen. Um, very user-friendly, super easy to use with cold staking rewards. So it's like getting interest. Um, they're working on privacy with Terraform, also uh, DeFi to decentralize and replace financial institutions. So go ahead and check them out over at devault.cc and get you a Devault Core Wallet today. 
Also, be sure to check out the show notes to find exchanges that they are traded on. With that said, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's like anywhere with mountains really gets like difficult to, you know, um, control because, you know, the people who like the native people who live there, whatever way, shape or form, be it, you know, Peru or the Appalachians or Afghanistan, you know, it's like you're not going to have a foreign invading force come in because they're not familiar with the place and like you're not going to starve them out, you know, and there's just only, you know, it really just shows the, the, um, you know, the loose myth of government, you know, that, you know, it's easy to be brought up to think they're just all powerful and can do whatever, but there's real realities in a situation like this where they just can't, you know, so it's a, I don't know, it just, it just really makes me happy to see it displayed. Yeah, that's that's one urban legend that they try to kind of keep quiet here in Peru. If you look at the English or Spanish speaking press about the Fujimori years, you'll see a lot of people who will tell you that Alberto Fujimori defeated Sendero Luminoso. And, you know, his police units made the arrests and everything. But in reality, what happened is they had about three and a half years with Sendero Luminoso shows up at a person's farm on Monday. Uh, they rape your sister, they rape your mom, and they take your chickens. And then on Thursday, the Peruvian special forces, the Sinchis, show up and they shoot your dad for being a Sendero Luminoso collaborator. And they rape your sister, rape your mom, and steal your pig. And that, that was basically how the war on terror here in Peru played out, including with things like uh, both sides, Sendero Luminoso and the Peruvian government, uh, taking young men and even young women as child soldiers. And what happened after that is that Alberto Fujimori decided to let the Highlanders start what they call a Ronda Campesina, Campesino, which is basically shot farmers with shotguns. And there were even, I remember, people in the United States who were donating shotguns to these Peruvian farmers. Within three months of that program really kicking off, what happened was that there were communications in Sendero Luminoso saying, we have to leave the mountains. We've lost the Andes. We have to go to the cities. Because once they started running up against these groups of four or five guys with Winchester shotguns and, you know, stuff like that, that they got secondhand from the United States, they couldn't, they couldn't beat them. And Sendero Luminoso got driven out of the highlands by the residents of the highlands. And once they were forced to operate exclusively in Lima, then they were an e a much easier target for the, uh, the government forces. And that's basically how Sendero Luminoso got beaten. But the uh, Peruvian government and their American backers did not beat Sendero Luminoso in the guerrilla war. Uh, Sendero Luminoso got beat in the guerrilla war because the residents turned against them. And it was over almost immediately. Yeah, it's almost like there's like the guerrilla fighters, you know, and then, but it's like, you know, they're decentralized. But then you have like, even beyond that, is like just like the, the people who live there almost like second level guerrilla fighters, <laughs> you know, like they, you know, you have to, you, you know, you can't necessarily beat gorillas because they're decentralized, but you, it's kind of hard to beat the native population too, especially when they're armed. That's a really cool story about the uh, Americans sending them shotguns. Like, I guess that might answer my next question though, which is what is like gun ownership like there, like <clears throat> legally or otherwise, are they, are you allowed to own guns, you know, according to the government in Peru or does the general population maybe have them? Or, I mean, I, I'd have to imagine people live in the sticks. I mean, now it seems like they might at least have shotguns, but is there like a general gun culture there or not not really it, not really you need a to to have a uh, a gun in in peru you have to have a license and uh yeah you know i've been through this i don't have it all complete but the exact process is that you have uh you have to get a license uh 
which includes a medical exam and a psychological exam. And then you have to complete a, it's a gun safety course, but I think it's like three or four hours. So I wouldn't really call that a, a very complete course in gun safety. And then you have to pay a yearly licensing fee to have the, the gun. So there's the background check aspect and everything like that. People who live out in the provinces tell me that, you know, they've got a lot of long guns out there and that aren't licensed and, you know, kind of like anything else, if you really want a gun in Peru, you can definitely get them. But the official rule is that nobody has a gun. And for a lot of people here in Peru, they're real believers that, you know, the police are going to save them and, gun crimes are just you know, shocking but i i think that in the rural areas of peru the attitude is a little bit different but i can tell you for sure peru is definitely they definitely do not have a gun culture yeah i mean i'd have to imagine anybody living like you know like in rural areas like in like like I live in a in a very rural area, I'm like not even like to protect me from like people, but just like we have a little farm and everything. It's like I couldn't imagine not having guns, just you know, coyotes and stuff, <laughs> you know. So I couldn't imagine living in the mountains, you know. And I I don't know what it's like there, but I mean I feel it's maybe I don't know jungly or something. Like I feel so dumb, like like such a dumb American sometimes. Like I don't know what do they have their ocelots. What's dangerous? But uh, <laughs> but um, but like I don't know. I couldn't imagine like walking around without having even just like a 22 on me, you know? Um, but you know, I mean, people live for millennia without guns. So maybe I'm just, <laughs> how, uh, yeah, how I you doing in the, still with it, us? I'm sorry, Tom. No, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. Okay. Cool. Just want to make sure. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure that the people who live in the rural areas have that attitude. I know one guy who, yeah, I guess he's basically a professional tractor operator. He goes back and forth between Idaho and then his, his family lands in the Northern Highlands. And he, he has a shotgun and a rifle at his farm. But here in Lima, I've only ever seen one person open carrying. And he was a security guard for somebody at an ATM. And apart from that, the only other people I've seen with with uh, guns are the police. But I grew up in Wyoming, and I got my first gun for my 11th birthday. And, you know, went through hunter safety and all that kind of stuff. And I hunted the whole time I live in the, lived in the States. I lived in Texas and really got into hog hunting when I lived there, so... Yeah, I have a much different attitude about guns than most of my neighbors here in Peru, which, which is sad because uh, they have a uh, issue with corruption here because they're just complete impunity and they kind of just shove the plebs around with the police whenever they want. And then, the you know... You know, when when someone here does have a gun and does a gun crime, they have no nothing to do but just capitulate. And that's the official advice from the Peru, the Peruvian police. You know, if you're robbed, capitulate. If they break in your house, just do whatever they want you want you to do. Holy shit! That's um, that's crazy. Uh. They so they just they just tell you just just comply with whatever the robbers want. So. Yeah, and the the murder law here is based on Catholic doctrine. So, if a police officer shoots an unarmed victim, he is automatically charged with murder. So you don't have that very often. The police here now in the last 25 years do not shoot unarmed people and get away with it. And the, the problem with that is that if you're a citizen and someone breaks into your house and he has a knife, 
and you shoot him, you're up for murder. They'll charge you. The last time that happened, it was kind of like a minor celebrity shot some guy who broke into his garage and was strong arm robbing his wife, I believe. And he, they charged him, but he got basically a slap on the wrist. So <clears throat> my father-in-law, before he passed away, he was a police officer here. And he, he, he told me right off, if you buy guns, a gun here, you need two guns and you have to drop one if you shoot somebody. <laughs> He's armed. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Um, so you, you, earlier you kind of mentioned that it was kind of like Australia in terms of lockdown. Um, that's kind of sad to hear. Now, can people travel to Peru right now if they wanted to, or um, what's the what's the situation between international travel? Yeah, the the thing is, is that we started with those real draconian medical martial law uh, lockdowns. But he, here's the the thing that I love about Peruvian people: they don't do that. Okay, you can you can make whatever law you want here in Peru about how you operate a restaurant or when you're supposed to be in your house or anything like that, and they will disobey. Okay, so it's like Mexico then. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were there were neighbors here who were having like their baptism parties and first birthday parties during uh, medical martial law and just kind of thumb their nose at the police when they showed up. So <clears throat> the to travel to Peru now with the way they've relaxed it, you just need a, a test, proof that you've had a test. Is it the anti-gen and test or is it uh, a different one? You can, you can do either one. The last time I checked, and it had to be 72 hours before you traveled. How, how easy is it to, like, bribe medical? You know, in Latin America, we all hear the stories of, like, bribing police. And, uh, hell, I've even done it myself. But, uh, you know, how easy is it to, to bribe medical um, staff and stuff like that to be able to get maybe – test paperwork done or, or whatever else? Uh, I've never met an employee of the Peruvian government who wasn't viable. Uh, I personally, I really don't like the, that or how that works here, but I, I would say that everybody in Peru who works for the government is viable. And I, I wouldn't, I'm pretty sure that, uh, when I was at the farmer's market the other day, there the kid who was selling masks was selling uh, vaccination cards. <laughs> nice. And, you, you know, so if I wouldn't even go into business in that here because I'm already way behind the curve. <laughs> <laughs> and then with the, the tracking system here, if if you get the card, I'm pretty sure that you can just fudge your way through everything else, you know. That's that's awesome. That's good to hear. Um, so yeah, um, is there anything about Peru that uh, that like your average Joe wouldn't know? Like, um, like how is it different from some of the other Latin American countries? Well, the, I, I'd say the first thing that I, I noticed, the major difference is that I spent 18 years working in a bilingual environment in the United States with mostly people from Mexico, El Salvador, and Honduras. And when I came to Peru, they speak a completely different dialect of Spanish. Uh, okay, so easy so was it can... to jump into that, like getting a new dialect? Yeah, and it and 
the other thing is that between Spanish speaking countries, the offensive words are different. So there's, there's that linguistic difference. Um, and I guess that the other difference is the average Peruvian is very predisposed to civil disobedience. During the elections, you'll find a lot of people who are true believers. And within three months, everybody's back to, I've never trusted the government anyway. <laughs> and if you, if you want to avoid paying, you know, things like sales tax or things like that in your purchases, it's extremely easy to do that. Um, I guess other things about Peru that, that, if you haven't visited, you might not know it's Peru is a very easy country to set up a business in, uh, and a very cheap, you, you can get it done in a couple of days on a visit and have a Peruvian bank account and, uh, uh, anything from a LTD style business to, a, a full on corporation. Uh, without investing a huge am amount of money, they've got very nice commercial links between Peru and Can uh, Panama that make it really easy to set up uh, a Peruvian-owned business in Panama or a Panamanian-owned business in Peru. And the, the reason I mention that is I think uh, for a lot of people who live in the United States, that right now they might be feeling like they're stuck in a paycheck situation and they look at you know uh, big corporations like apple and they don't pay taxes well one way that just the average person can get away from having to pay a lot of payroll taxes or things like that is to set up a business and when they have work with someone else, they take that as business to business instead of as a hourly wage or a salary setup. So once you have a business like that set up with a tax number, whether it be in Peru or in Panama or in Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is a really popular place to do this in the United States, then you're under a completely different uh, tax umbrella. So you might be the owner of the company, but your your salary is based on the fact that you're the chief janitor. And that keeps your payroll exposure to whatever they would pay a chief, chief, chief janitor at your corporation. What about residency? Is it um, is it hard to get residency there? No, it's it's not impossible to get residency here. Um, Peru has it set up so that you can basically stay here forever as a tourist. The basic tourist visa, I think, is ninety days, and then you can renew that for another ninety days and then go back out of the country and come back for another 180 days. The residency is set up. They have the most common ones would be for average person would be what's called the Yamada de Negocios or the business residence. And you could come here as a tourist. And if you speak English, get a job teaching English somewhere. And you can use that with most of those companies to get the residence visa or resident or just get residence here and the other one would be through uh through family if you get married to a peruvian or have peruvian family members there's also um religious residency but you you kind of i in from what i saw at the immigration office here all of those people were catholic nuns and priests really got to be committed yeah but you don't you don't have to be a peruvian resident to set up a business here uh, okay and it probably makes it easier having a business there trying to apply for residency, I would imagine. 
Is that uh, is that kind of the case, or? Sure. Well, I guess what I was mentioning is if if you wanted to create your own path to residency, you could create a business, and then that business could hire you as an employee, and then you could do your path to residency that way. That as opposed to, for example, like Argentina, they've got in Dominican Republic, you can just buy citizenship. I think it's $100,000 or something like that for Argentina and $50,000 to become a permanent resident or citizen of the Dominican Republic. Oh, it's, it's only 100, oh, yeah, it's only 100 it's like, K in Argentina. You can like do that. It's only a hundred K in Argentina. Yeah. But it, if you want my honest opinion, yeah. If you want my honest opinion, uh, Argentinian passport isn't worth that much. I, uh, I think even if you were a big multinational, you would only have your employees do that if you had to. Okay. Yeah. It's just easy. If you want to have options, you know, <laughs> somewhere to dip out or, or whatever and then what was what was the other one not argentina but there's the other one i think that one that one might have been like good for like tax purposes too you know have a reason to to be there and i guess it's just easy to buy it you know if you can afford it i couldn't but <laughs> yeah i i couldn't either but when when i was looking around at that after i first got my citizenship here i was like well maybe i'll get a third passport you know and I was looking around at the possibilities, and so far, the, the best ones would be, uh, in my opinion, Panama or, or Mexico. But Mexico is a little bit more difficult, I think. Yeah, it's, um, it's not the easiest to get. Uh, you need like five years um, having married somebody. Um, you have to go out of the, the country every six months. Um, yeah, so it's not, it's not too easy to get a Mexican passport for sure, but it is possible. All right. Let's take a quick second to shout out Agorist Acres Seeds. Agoristacres.com stocks a variety of seeds for your garden or homestead. They also have really cool packaging instead of those silly paper envelopes. Buy seeds with crypto, support the counter economy and become self-sustaining today. Agorist Acres offers fast shipping, so you can get started right away. Make sure you use code NEXUS10 at the checkout for 10% off of your orders. Also, they will donate a portion of the sale to Agorist Nexus, helping to bring you all the great content you expect. And all right, let's get on with it. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, Doug. Oh, I was, um, I was hoping uh, we might be able to talk about seasteading for a mo. I saw one. Uh, yeah, I saw that, one there's a topic. I, yeah, yeah. I saw you dip into man, and uh, quite often. Yeah, what you got? Well, the, that was kind of the the thing that really got me investigating in into the what I could do from being able to move back and forth between Peru and Panama. The seasteading project they kind of have things going on both coasts of panama but on the pacific coast of panama they're going to open up a new like a uh, free trade zone and i think you know over the next hundred years it it's possible to see some a place like that become a new hong kong and <clears throat> the just investigating that the Shipbuilding business here in Peru is something they really want to push. And they've even got a, like a, this fascist partnership between a shipbuilder and the Peruvian government that is building, you know, fairly affordable, like tuna boats. And they built a very, uh, well, the world's fastest, uh, like three-mast sailing ship there called the BAP Union. So I think that along the Pacific coast of Central and South America, it, 
holds a lot of potential in the future. And with something like seasteading, <clears throat> I, I would see even, you know, governments like Ecuador, Peru, uh, Panama, if that idea was uh, financially beneficial enough to them, they would definitely push it. Uh, especially if you could, in Peru and Panama, come at it from an angle where you were building, I don't know how else to put it, like, but like low-income neighborhood seasteading, uh, especially for like the small-scale fishermen or or with you know small-scale tourism. I think that that could really get a foothold and be a place you know, kind of easy for the people who are interested in, you know, agorism or VANU or permanent travel to, to have as one of those waypoints or as a zone where you've actually got some economic and, and civil freedom in the future. So are these, would this be like in international waters or like in, within like the jurisdiction of a country or what's like, what's the idea like through international waters and then you're not really under the thumb of anybody or is, is that what's going on? Yeah, well, not so much. The thing, the problem that, you know, on like the Seasteading Institute website that they discuss with that is that international waters are started 200 miles out. Oh, I didn't realize it was that far. So I thought it was that's like way out or there. Something. Yeah, yeah, that's deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the the 12 miles is a different is a different thing. But I'm pretty sure most countries legal jurisdiction ex extends way out there. So for it would be considered seasteading. Is that typically like, because aren't most of those seasteading places like kind of anchored in one spot or could you be on, let's say like a sailboat and still be considered seasteading as long as you just like live aboard? Yeah, I think mo like most of what I've seen are they're kind of looking at being stationary and using the same technology they use with oil wells. Gotcha. So it'd be like like anchored or tethered or something um, to a specific location. I guess that'd give you advantage of being able to have, yeah, like more like, let's say like solar panels or, I mean, gosh, maybe it's some kind of farming or something, huh? Um, I don't know whether, yeah, it's a <laughs> I don't know. It seems like fun, but it seems like any like big, like long-term thing would definitely face some challenges. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, the Seasteading Institute has on their website a link to these pods that they've built a few prototypes of in Panama. And they're, they're just like a single pillar or a single buoy you would find underneath uh, uh, an oil rig. And then about three or four meters above the water, they've got this big egg-shaped egg living area inside there that floats above the waves and those are fairly cheap and could be towed out to start you know i guess more like a, a a tourist destination you know where people would stay in those like a a hotel that's a uh, yeah that's super cool man i do that you know my parents they lived on a sailboat for a few years before I was born. And like, they used to just like sail to Mexico, like, you know, using like the stars for navigation, like crazy, like crazy cool, you know? And there was definitely points in my life where I was like, that's what I want to do. I just have like a sailboat and just be out there and be out there. You, you know, anyhow, it seemed, you know, like, seemed really cool. And now I have a farm, the exact cool. opposite. I can't leave, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I definitely get down with something like that, man. That's awesome. Um, what, uh, wasn't there like a big, and I'm not trying to sound like a Debbie Downer on this or anything, but wasn't there like a big thing, like what was like Thailand or something? There was a couple who was doing seasteading and they ended up like, um, I don't know, they had to stop or maybe like the government came and got them or, or, or something. It was a few years back. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do that. Uh, I don't remember that the couple's names, but they ended up getting out of there only because they got some advanced warning that the Thai Navy was coming and they were going to tow their, their platform back into their national control. And I guess 
I think that's the the couple who then they went to Panama and they tried to buy that cruise ship that they called the what uh, SS Satoshi. And they were nice. going to just park that in Panama and they had the, the purchase was done and everything. The ship was on its way to Panama and they, they got denied insurance. So that was the, what stopped them from being able to register the boat with a Panamanian flag. And I, that was the end of that project pretty much. So I'm not I'm not sure what they're cooking up next, but that uh, expat guy and his uh, Thai wife seem pretty pretty dead set on something will come next. I bet with seasteading. Yeah, that's um, Chad and Nadia Elwartoski Elwartoski, and um, yeah, they're they're building uh, they're building prototypes and. Um, and seasteads down there in, in Panama. And I think when they released the first one, they said they would come on our, uh, on our podcast, which is cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's a shame that they're, uh, that they, they couldn't get insurance for the boat. Yeah. Cause I was kind of debating about that. And the, I, my angle on that was, I was looking at trying to get in there and maybe be the, do business to business food service for them because I was in that business in the United States when I lived there. So I was really optimistic about the Satoshi and pretty sad when the insurance deal fell through on that. Yeah. I, I applied, um, yeah, I applied for a I, job on that boat, <laughs> trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to find an easy way to leave the U S and, uh, yeah, it fell through. So But um, but yeah, what's, I see. I, I think what's going on in in Central America with Panama's economy and with uh, with uh, Bitcoin in El Salvador, that eventually some project is going to come out of that. There's going to be some opportunities there, especially as the you know U.S. government is, in my opinion, less able to project their power into the into Latin America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and it really does, like, I mean, like, can I just say, like, how, like, awful it really is? Everything that the United States, not like they don't fuck around everywhere, but really the, the things that they've done in, you know, Central and South America has been really awful, you know, the last, you know, forever, but definitely the last several decades, you know. Um, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, but like, it's so good. He talks about a lot of that stuff. And a lot of stuff that, like, went on in, like, uh, Panama and everything. I am really hoping that. Yeah, a lot of those countries are getting a little sick of it. The U.S. might be a little weaker in that regard. And the the Bitcoin thing in El Salvador was cool. I am really hoping that like um, Panama and maybe some other countries sort of keep doing that. You know, um, I'd hate to see if um, you just have one, you know, quote unquote unruly country down there uh, kind of trying to buck a, the U.S. dollar and something terrible were to happen to them. <laughs> you know, so I really hope some other uh, some other countries join forces. Yeah, because, you know, the dollarization for Latin American countries might be good for the big businesses and they get a kick out of that. But for the average, the average South American, they go through uh, an inflation and devaluation cycle and basically get get their savings and pensions wiped out on on every one of those. And then it, it's hard to really look at a country like Ecuador that doesn't even have their own, you know, money. They use the U.S. dollar. It's very hard to see them as having, you know, national sovereignty, let alone individual sovereignty when they're trapped in uh, a fiat currency that's run by Jerome Powell, who could care less about anybody in Ecuador. Yeah, for sure. Do you do you see much cryptocurrency usage like day to day in in Peru at all? We've got a friend of the show, George Donnelly, um, and he's down in Colombia, if I remember correctly. He does a lot of like uh, 
BCH, Bitcoin Cash, uh, uh, like like getting merchants on board and be able to accept it and whatnot. Do you see much like day-to-day cryptocurrency usage in, in Peru? No, I, I don't. Um, there are, as far as I know, two Bitcoin ATMs in Lima and one in Arequipa. And... <clears throat> I, I've been pretty successful in being able to get people into it and and sell some coins just retail, but that it just hasn't taken off that much in Peru, uh, except I think amongst you know kind of the, the more tech savvy group. I've had a couple of people who were my clients who paid me in Bitcoin. But not not recently. It really needs adoption. All right, right on. Um, I don't know, man. What, I mean, what 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 else are you into? Uh, did you did you have anything else on seasteading or anything, Brandon? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I wanted to ask. Kind well, of breaking up again. I can't I can't hear you very well. Yeah, you guys are breaking up for me too. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask. With the well, Panama just raised their. Um, you used to be able to get like a, a visa slash, or wait, no, it was like residency. Sorry, residency for ten grand. And then later on, you could um, in five years, if you stay there for a couple of days a year, you could get uh, citizenship. But after August 15th of this year, they raised it. I'm not sure what they raised it to. I think like 150 or maybe $200,000. Do you know Do you know the updated price of, of doing that with Panama? Or, or have you heard anything about it? No, I haven't. Um, I guess the thing is, I was looking at it from uh, the angle of what it's like for... Uh, a Peruvian citizen to go to Panama, but uh, one one thing I think that was universal is that uh, Panama will give you a residence visa if you are a business person there, and the the setup for a business uh, I, I've been told takes two hours in Panama City. So you might have you might have that option of setting up a business in Panama and then hire a Panamanian person as your manager and have them get you residence as I was talking about in Peru. Uh, okay. Cool, cool. Uh, well, was there anything else you? Uh... Was there anything you wanted to plug or anything else you wanted to cover before we uh, take off here, Tom? I'll hang up. I can't. I can check the page right here. I'm. I'm not sure if you guys can tell, but the audio is breaking up. I can't hear you very well. Yeah, we, we. I think well, at least the two of us live in the sticks, so <laughs> we've been dealing with some internet issues recently. I apologize. Try doing your plugs and everything, whatever, whatever you got, whatever you want to sell. <laughs> um, you know, anything like that, and um, you know, hopefully we we'll get the best audio we can out of it. Hopefully we we'll get the best audio we can out of it. Okay, so sorry. Sometimes my connection here is a little bit flaky. Oh, uh, you're good, man. We deal with a lot of a lot of that too. <laughs> Okay, but looking at Panama, I'm getting a, a Panamanian uh, migrations page up here, and it looks like they've got for yeah for opening a business, bank deposit, kind of like the Argentinian or uh, Dominican Republic, and then for investors, also. Yeah, they've got quite a few of them here. They've got. Uh, retired pensionist, forestry investor, uh, investor in the Panamanian Pacific area, their free trade region. Well, so what you see these like ways you can um, get in there? 
so to speak, if you like, you can fill one of those slots. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. You know, we, um, we definitely like to, uh, try, try and present people with options, you know, if they want to vacate a, a situation or an area, you know, hopefully find a, find a place where they can make a little more freedom for themselves. And it seems like a lot of that is happening in, um, South central, you know, America and everything. So, um, that's a, that's awesome. Yeah. And the great thing about that is most countries don't, um, don't make you pay taxes when you're outside of their country. Um, unless you unless you're doing business inside of it so like like the problem with the u.s is that if you don't own anything there you don't have a job there you don't even have any property there or anything you're still required to do like an income tax tax form with the u.s um so there's huge advantages to getting citizenship outside different passports and citizenship outside of the u.s and I think basically renouncing citizenship is, is a great way to, uh, uh, or a healthy way to a, a path of, of freedom, in my opinion. But um, Yeah, and, and for the average person, if you're a U.S. citizen and you want to expatriate, and you're not extremely wealthy, so you're, you're not making over $100,000 a year, or even, and you move to another country, if you file a couple of tax returns, uh, although you don't really have to, you can kind of probably just drop off the radar. I mean, that's what I did. I don't make enough money that they could charge me taxes. And the, the second step in that, that we looked into is that my wife is just, she's a Peruvian citizen and she's entitled to 55% everything I have before any foreign tax company is. And my children are entitled to another 25%. So, I mean, unless you're an extremely wealthy investor, then your, your tax exposure just kind of disappears because you're not even in a taxable bracket anymore. Uh, okay, makes sense. Um, I, I have so I don't know what the the um, what the situation on renouncing is like renouncing citizenship, but the I I heard a um I heard that you have to have like a certain amount of years like five years in a row where you filed and you can prove that you filed to be able to renounce. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so yeah, different strategies there, um, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, sometimes it gets to the point where you're just like, I don't need your fucking permission to renounce. Like, you know, but I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, was there anything you wanted to plug or, uh, or, or sell before, um, before we uh, sign off here? No, I guess I would say that right now, the next project I'm working on as my own business is I'm looking into exporting coffee from Moyabamba, Peru, and from Villarica, Peru. And uh, I've got a couple of like retail products that that I think are worth exporting to the United States and then I'm also working on uh, contact a contact I have with some cooperatives who uh, raise the green coffee beans so in in the chances somebody out there is in the coffee business in the United States like you're a roaster or you're interested in retailing I'm hit hit me up dm me wherever you find me on keybase or on on twitter if you're interested in getting into peruvian coffee if that works out i might look into chocolate man i like me some good coffee uh for sure i actually do know a couple um coffee people i will holler at them and uh and yeah let them know um for sure. And we had a guy uh, here at our local farmer's market who like roasted his own coffee and, you know, sold it, whatever, um, just the beans. And like, man, it's like, how did I ever used to drink Folgers, you know, <laughs> 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 start drinking real coffee. 
Oh, yeah, that, that that's one thing I can plug is that Peru really has good coffee. It, if you can run across any, it's worth it's worth giving it a try. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I have had Peruvian coffee; it is really good, for sure. Cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on, Tom. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thank you guys for all you do. I really enjoy the podcast and the, and the website. Oh, thanks. Yeah, awesome, man. Thank yeah, you so much. I'm really gra- glad that uh, that agorism has exploded and so many people are talking about these kinds of lifestyles and things like that. And now that there's a, there's a name for the weird-ass way I live my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that a result of all this, you know, government overreach the last couple of years, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it will produce much more agoras for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it already has. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. We had, I think we had a big jump on like from the get go. I think a few people pulled back. I think it was usually normal, you know, but I think we've had a lot of people that have really stuck to it. And I mean, and then of course, there's the people who don't even know that it's a thing and what it's called and have just decided, like, hey, fuck these guys. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to not wear a mask if I want, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do what the fuck I want. And, you know, fuck them. Even if they don't have a name for it, you know what I mean? There's people just getting into that. I'm going to do what I want kind of thing. And I love it. Sure. And, and maybe we can help speed up the pipeline from them coming in at the at, at one end with Ron Paul and get him to go all the way through past the Libertarian Party all the way into just I'm an agorist. I'm just going to do it on my own now. Very well said, man. Do you um, we usually wrap the shows on a quote. Do you have any favorite quotes or anything you want to throw out there? And let, I don't know yeah, Brandon, I if you already had one set up or anything. I did not do any uh, homework on that regard. I, I've got one just no, in I, case, but uh, but okay, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good one. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I'll go with this one then. Uh, if any man's money can be taken by a so-called government without his own personal consent, all his other rights are taken with it. For with his money, the government can and will hire soldiers to stand over him, compel him to submit to its uh, arbitrary will, and kill him if he resists. Lysander Spooner, of course, mixes out. Nice. Peace.